Thank you, Tim, and good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody who's here today. And uh, as Tim mentioned earlier, we're going to read, continuing in the book of Romans, in chapter 2, reading from verse 11 down to verse 16. So Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And God will bless what we've read from his word. Now, if you have been uh, at the last uh, few weeks on a Sunday morning, you'll know, and if uh, if you haven't, perhaps you don't, so it's worth saying that these introductory chapters in Romans, Paul is setting out a case for the guilt of mankind before God, irrespective of people's background, irrespective of the type of people that they are. So, for example, in the, in the first chapter, he describes people who are immoral and people who really lack moral fiber and behave in an immoral way quite openly and in many senses as uh, we would read these words it's easy to see that these people would upset God that their behavior would be offensive to God but as he starts to progress and uh, we looked at chapter 2 uh, the first few verses last week with Jordan, we start to see Paul expanding the scope from the obviously immoral of the world, the people who just live how they like and do things that are plain wrong and seem very happy in it and don't care about the consequences of doing wrong, it would appear. He starts to move from there into perhaps an area that's a bit more challenging for, for folk, into the areas of people who live a more moral life. And then in this part that we've read, he begins to talk about what was an issue, particularly at that time. It has relevance still today, um, slightly differently perhaps for an audience such as yourselves. But at that time, um, where he really is talking about, from verse 12 onwards, he's talking about people who were Jews, who believed that being a Jew, being born a Jew, being able to trace your ancestry back through Jacob and Isaac to Abraham, was good enough for God, and made you right before God, and would allow you to be in God's presence forever. And this part that we have read is the first part of um, a passage describing why that is not the case. 
Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of the particular issues for Jews, otherwise I would have to deal with the passage that I think it's Kevin is speaking on next week. But this part, the introductory part, is talking about the significance of obeying the law. Now, when you and I think about the law in an ordinary sense, we would think about the rules set by the government, the rules that we all have to adhere to. They might be obscure laws. They might be funny laws that we end up being caught out because we don't know enough about the law. But there are other laws that we know about, like there's a speed limit out there of 20 miles an hour on that road, and we know what would happen if you were driving at 60 miles an hour and a police car saw you. So we think of the law in that sense. But in this particular uh, passage, and generally in the Bible, the law is referring to the law as God set it out for the people of Israel way back when they had just come out of Egypt and he gave them the Ten Commandments plus other things that he wanted them to do, that he expected them to do, that collectively are called the law. And the people of Israel, the Jews, they laid a great deal of store by having the law given to them. And they said that they were special, as indeed they were, because God had chosen them as a nation and given them the law. And Paul starts to address this perception that they had that because they had the law and they had been born to be Jews, that that was good enough for God. But what's interesting is that when Paul speaks here, he talks about those people, Gentiles, in verse 14, who don't have the law. They don't have the law that God gave to Moses that we can read about in the Old Testament and was read weekly in the synagogue on a Sabbath day amongst the Jews. When Gentiles who don't have the law do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. And Paul was introducing to people who thought that being Jews was enough to satisfy a God, that in actual fact, God has revealed his moral law to people indirectly to Gentiles, even though it was done explicitly to Jews. Now, one wee thing that's worth just pointing out in the passing is the phrase that I read there, they are a law to themselves. Now, in the King James version of the Bible that was translated um, in the day of King James and became the authorized version to be read in churches. The phrase is that um, they are a law unto themselves. Now, if I said he's a law unto himself, well, what you would be thinking if you were thinking about that phrase being used was that's a person who knows fine well what they should be doing, but just does not care. They'll do their own thing. Yeah? And the phrase gets used quite, quite frequently. It might be used of 
people who are in a position of power, whether it be in politics or whether it be in a business position or whatever, and they just don't live by the rules. They know what the rules are, but they've got their own rules that they are prepared to live to and they just don't care about the fact that they're breaking the moral rules. But that phrase, that interpretation rather of the phrase, a law unto themselves, is not what Paul's talking about. So although the phrase has been lifted to become an idiom in the English language, has been lifted like many phrases from the Bible, when you hear people talking about somebody being a law unto themselves, it's not the way that it was intended to be used when it was written in the Bible. So what that passage is not saying is that there are a bunch of people who just do their own thing. And we'll come back to what it really means in a minute. So just in case you think you know what the phrase means in normal life and they're applying it to the passage that we've got. So... Paul begins this passage and he talks about everybody who has sinned without the law will perish without the law. And those who have sinned under the law, meaning the Old Testament law for the Jews, will be judged by that law. Because God doesn't show any partiality. Now I don't think there are any Jews in the audience today. Um, if I'm wrong and you've got Jewish lineage, you can, you can tell me afterwards. Certainly the majority of people here are Gentiles in that sense. However, it's worth saying that if we roll things forward to the modern day, just as the Jews had the Old Testament law from God revealed to them by God, that they had to live to, to meet God's standard. In this day and age, we have the Bible in its entirety. And each one of us has access to it. At the time Paul wrote these words, generally speaking, Gentiles did not have access to the Hebrew scriptures. And so what Paul was saying was, there were those who sinned without the law, and there were those who sinned under the law. But either way, the effects of that sin will be that they'll perish, that they'll be judged. And the same still applies. So whether or not you're living in a knowledge of God's laws revealed in the Bible, you can't claim that because you have it, and are trying to live by it, that you're doing good enough for God and that you're somehow right before God. And that's the essence of what Paul is arguing in that sentence. Because what he's saying is, it's not hearing the law that makes you righteous before God. And again, there was a really real problem <clears throat> in these days that people who were Jews believed that because they heard the scriptures being read to them and they heard God's law being read to them on a regular basis, that that made them right before God. But says Paul, that's not the case. The issue is, it's the people who do the law who will be justified. 
And he goes on to describe Gentiles who don't have the law. By nature, they do what the law requires. So even if people were not Jews in these days and were Gentiles or didn't read the Bible uh, in, in the present day, what Paul is saying is everybody has a conscience. He explicitly talks about what the law being written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness to them. Everybody has a deep-rooted understanding somewhere of what is right and wrong. Now, you'll get people that would argue against that. You'll get people that would say, well, you know, my sense of right's not your sense of right, and start to excuse themselves. But if you ask yourself the question, do you have the feeling that you distinguish between things that are morally right and things that are morally wrong? Is that a characteristic that you have in your inner being? Do you understand that there's good and there's evil? And not only that there is good and that there is evil, but do you understand something about what constitutes good and what constitutes evil? Now, I'm not looking for shouted out answers, of course, but I expect that the answer that everybody would give to that question would be, yes, I can distinguish between good and evil. And I've got a fairly, a fairly good idea of things that are good and things that are evil. There might be some things that are marginal and you're not entirely sure. But I expect that if I asked you whether murder was a good thing or an evil thing, unanimously you would say it's an evil thing. And I could list various things without going into all the details of the things that Paul wrote about in what we know as Romans chapter 1. These things, and you would recognize them to be evil. So what Paul was teaching here and is teaching us is you don't have to have the law of God in order to distinguish between good and evil. The fact that the Jewish people had it, was of benefit to them. And for those of you who read your Bible and read in there what God defines to be good and what he defines to be evil, well, that is a blessing. That is a good thing, undeniably, and Paul's not suggesting otherwise. But what he is saying is you have given by God something in your nature that allows you to distinguish between good and evil. Such that he could write, the work of the law is written on your heart and your conscience bears witness to it. Conscience can niggle us, can't it? We can worry about things that we do because somewhere 
in our innermost being, a wee voice is saying, shouldn't be doing that. Shouldn't really be doing that. Now, we can override that voice and go and do it. But the voice niggles with us. And we feel bad. We might later show remorse. We might not. That's neither here nor there as far as this goes. But our conscience reminds us that things that we're maybe about to do are not right things to do. And our conscience tells us that things that we have done are not right things. And therefore we can't claim that we're righteous. So the essence of what Paul was saying was just because you know the law of God doesn't make you right. For a Jew who was diligent, they would, as I said, certainly go to the synagogue on a Sabbath and they would, at that time, they wouldn't have personally the scriptures in their own possession because uh, that just wasn't the case. But at the synagogue, there would be the complete scriptures and somebody would read from the scriptures and they would hear the word of God and they would hear God's law. And many people went away from the synagogue happy that they'd heard God's law and they'd be made right before God and they were right before God. And Paul says that is not the case. Because hearing it isn't good enough. You've got to do what it says. And in the case of those who hadn't heard God's law, through their conscience and through what God has written in their hearts with their own law, their thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when they will be judged. We'll come back to the judgment later. Your thoughts are enough to accuse you before God of the wrong that you've done. But if you've done what the law says, then that thing that you've done is excusable, is what Paul is saying. But the problem is the things that we've done that are not good, the things that we've done that are bad. If we go back up to verse 12, you'll notice it says, it talks about those who have sinned without the law perishing and those who have sinned under the law being judged by the law. Paul starts off with the premise that whether you've heard explicitly the law of God or not, you've broken it, you've sinned. And I think if you ask yourself the question honestly, you would recognize that that is true. You could tell me that you've, you've been really good all your life and you've not put a foot wrong. The reality is I would disbelieve you. 
because that's just not what we're like. But your conscience tells you in your innermost being that that would not be true. And therefore, obeying the law, obeying God's law, is not enough to make us right before God, to make us just before God. What the law does is it demonstrates how much we fail. It demonstrates that we don't keep up to God's standards. It demonstrates that we don't meet God's level of perfection, which is what he is. Perfectly righteous, perfectly good, with not one evil thought or wrong thought or action in all eternity. And if you have a conscience that's telling you of things that you've done that are wrong, or if by an analogy with the Jews who heard the Old Testament being read frequently, you are reading from the Bible or hearing the Bible being read, such as it has been this morning, regularly, and you hear God's law declared, irrespective of which way around it is, you'll realize that your life contains failings of God's moral standards against God's moral standards. And it's not enough to, for example, come along here and habitually listen to the word of God being read and say, like the Jews did at that time, well, I know the word of God. I've got a Bible. I have the word of God. I've heard it. God will be pleased that I've listened to it. In the book of James, James says that the person that reads and only reads the word of God is like somebody looking in a mirror and staring at their face and then walking away and forgetting what they looked like. Looking in the mirror didn't do them a scrap of good. It's doing it. Now, of course, as we've thought, the challenge is, can we do what God requires? And in writing these introductory chapters to Romans, Paul goes through case after case to demonstrate that we don't actually do what God requires. We all fail. We all fail in some way or other. And he ultimately says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. After presenting the case in a rigorous way, the outcome, the conclusion he reaches is that you, that I, that everybody who's ever lived, the Lord Jesus apart, have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The standard of God's righteousness. 
But there's a consequence of this. It's not simply that we fall short of God's standard and God says, that's a shame. B plus today. Didn't get an A plus. And you get a C minus. But try again next week. You might do better. Maybe you'll go back to getting an A plus. Maybe you'll get 100% next week. God does not work in continuous assessment in that way, keeping hoping that you'll do better next week and by good fortune in the week in which you pass away and die, you'll have it 100%. That's not what happens. People might live their lives as if that's what happens, but it's not what happens. Because the very last part that we read in verse 16, Paul is talking about that day, a particular day, a particular time, not just a conceptual day, not just some idea that we have, but at a particular time, on that day when, according to my gospel, and Paul's associating himself with the gospel of God when he's saying that. He's not saying, by the way, this is my gospel. I've made this up. According to what I'm teaching you, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. When he was in Athens and he was speaking to the philosophers, the thing that he said that triggered their disapproval was that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness and he's appointed a man to do that and that man he has demonstrated to be that person because he's raised them from the dead. Paul didn't get any further than that, it would appear, because when he talked about raising from the dead, they laughed at him. But in this verse, as Paul writes, nobody's interrupting him and laughing at him, and he declares quite clearly who it is that will carry out the judgment. It's Christ Jesus. And the Bible teaches very clearly that there is coming a time, a day, a particular time, when that judgment will take place. And those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law and deemed to have failed. And in the case of those whose law is written in their hearts, the Gentiles in our narrative, their thoughts will accuse them on that day. Your very conscience will confirm to you that the accusations laid against you of not adhering to God's standard make you guilty. And that's a very solemn thing 
Because what it's saying is the only possible outcome in that judgment is guilty. As you stand there on your own merit saying, here's what I've done. This stuff was, this stuff was in accordance with the law. I didn't murder anybody in my life. I didn't commit adultery. There's another wee niggle saying, yeah, but what about don't bear false witness, don't tell lies? And you say to yourself, uh, I'm afraid that's me. And substitute in there whatever else it is that you think your conscience pricks you on. And there will be something. And the only outcome is guilt. So Paul's message in the first few chapters in Romans is a very resounding challenge that says, on your own merit before God, the only outcome, the only conclusion in the day of judgment would be guilty. But the great thing is that later on, when we come to it in Romans, Paul tells us that there is a way of escape. There was a man who lived on earth who did not fall into that category of sinful behavior. And that was the man who will be the judge in that day, Christ Jesus, the perfect man, the son of God, the man who was God who came into this world because he was the son of God, not born and started his life the way that you or I have done, but born having been before in all eternity. The perfect being. And he laid down his life so that those who trust in him as their provision before God those who trust that in his death our sins can be punished and we can be pardoned. Those who trust in him, making him the Lord and master of their lives, will be saved. And just the same as their certainty about God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, later when we get to chapter 10 in Romans, there is certainty that those who confess Jesus as Lord, those who trust him, shall be saved. So the wonderful thing is that now in this present day, the opportunity exists that you can recognize your guilt before God. You can recognize that that pricking of your conscience or things that you do that when you compare them what the Bible says, you realize you're doing wrong. You're disobedient to God. That you don't have to stand before God and somehow be waiting for the inevitable outcome. You can avoid that by trusting that in the death of Jesus Christ, his perfect son is your, the source of your pardon because God will forgive you 
if you trust that his death was sufficient to meet God's requirement for holiness. And in a way that goes beyond our understanding, God will attribute to you the righteousness, the holiness, the perfection that Jesus Christ had as a man on earth, that he has, will attribute that to you. And all of these wrong things that worry your conscience will not be judged on you that the judgment for these fell in Christ. But that's something that you have to decide upon. God did not force that upon each one and say, whether you like it or not, I'm going to pardon you. Because a key thing with a pardon is it has to be accepted. And the key thing about a pardon is you have to acknowledge your guilt. That's why it was wrong when newspapers were reporting that the trials that happened of postmasters that they would receive their pardon because to receive a pardon they would have needed to have said they were guilty and these people were maintaining their innocence. I think maybe it was the journalists that were just getting it wrong. But a pardon is something that's offered to the guilty. If you can acknowledge your guilt openly to God, go from just it being in your own head as a conscience thing to being an open acknowledgement within yourself that before God you're guilty and pray to God confessing that guilt and simply trusting that through Jesus' death on the cross God can grant you a pardon that will mean that you will be forgiven. You will not suffer his wrath. Then indeed that will be the outcome. And the judgment that we read of here will not be yours. So as we sum up and close, knowing what the Bible says, listening to the Bible being read is not good enough to make you right before God. Attending church is not good enough to make you right before God. See, that's what these Jewish people of the day believed. And Paul was saying, no. The only way you can be made right before God is by doing what his law requires. And frankly, none of you can do it, is what Paul was saying. And I would say the same to each one here. None of us can do it, but one man did. And he satisfied God. And by trusting in him, we can have eternal salvation. He has borne God's wrath. Let him be your substitute and avoid this inevitable outcome when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus and find those who are depending on themselves guilty before God. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and Father, we give thanks that there is clarity in 
our hearts about that which is right and wrong and that we know that we do wrong. We thank you for giving us a conscience to tell us so. And Father, we do pray indeed that we might heed the warning of the outcome of that wrongdoing. We do pray that each one here might be challenged to confess their sin to you and accept the Lord Jesus as their saviour. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.